Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to the Provost podcast series, Faculty and Research. And with us today is Dr. Victor Cha, who is at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic Studies. Here at Georgetown, he holds the DS Song Korea Foundation Chair in Asian Studies. He also serves as Vice Dean for Faculty and Graduate Affairs in the School of Foreign Service. From 2004 to 2007, Victor served at the White House as Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, where he was primarily responsible for Japan, the Korean Peninsula, Australia, New Zealand, and Pacific Island nation affairs. He was also the Deputy Head of Delegation for the U.S at the six-party talks in Beijing and received two outstanding service commendations. In addition to his myriad of accolades, awards, and fellowships, he has written numerous articles and is the author of five books, including the award-winning Alignment Despite Antagonism, the U.S.-Korea-Japan Security Triangle. Victor, it's great to have you with us today. Great to be here. So maybe it would be good to begin with telling us how you got to Georgetown. Why are you here? How are you here? <laughs> well, um, I, I, I've been here for quite a while. I've been here since 1995. And I think it's fair to say that um, when I left college in 1983, I never imagined that I would be a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, I was an economics major in undergrad at that time. Everybody was going into banking. It's something I went into too. I did it for a year, really did not like it, uh, and then ended up at Oxford and did a degree in PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics. And while I was there, I actually remember very much that one evening sitting in the Bodleian Library and reading in Foreign Affairs George Kennan's Mr. X article and another piece by Bob Jervis, a professor at Columbia University. It was then I realized I was interested in international relations. So I ended up coming back to Columbia where I did my BA for my PhD in international political science, international relations. Postdoc at a few places, a small school up in Cambridge, Massachusetts and then out in Palo Alto and this position at Georgetown came open and in international affairs with a focus on Korea which is the area the country uh, that I focus on and it was probably the only job of that description in that year in the job market because it was such a narrow topic and fortunately I got it and I've been here ever since you know, both teaching and doing research on issues related to international relations in East Asia. So go, go back to the moment in the Oxford Library, and uh, where were you headed before you read those articles, you think? So I was actually just coming off the river. I was I rode for my college at Oxford, and I was just coming off the river, and I, it was a tutorial on international relations since 1945, and the topic for that week was how did the Korean War shape the Cold War? And you know, in the tutorial system, you have to go out and do your research on your own. So I essentially did a search on that, the title of that week's tutorial, How Did the Korean War Shape the Cold War? <laughs> and I came up with this article in the Journal of Conflict Resolution by Robert Jervis, international relations professor at Columbia. And reading that article, I became just very interested in both 
the, the history behind the work, looking at sort of deeply at the archival material, declassified State Department documents, and also the theory of how he saw a what was considered to be a peripheral limited war conflict, shaping and affecting entire U.S. grand strategy when it came to NSC 68 and other things during the Cold War. And I just was fascinated by all that. And I really thought this is something that I want to look into much more than simply one than one paper. Fortunately, the tutor that week, who would sometimes comment on the inconsistency of my papers each week, thought that it was a very good one. <laughs> and, and so one thing led to another. If I had not done that, you know, I probably would have gone back to doing something economics related because that's what I had studied in college. But fortunately... I got the political science bug and, and ended up here. And do you see your work as, as still leaning on economics as well as political science? And there's a bit of history, too. I yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing about international relations theory is that a lot of the core theory is actually derived from basic economics, theory of the firm and other sorts of things. So it was kind of a, a bit of a familiar language to me, game theory. It was all a bit of a familiar language to me. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm interested in it. I write about it. I teach about it. But I think I really became interested in the history. So so I don't know why in the end I chose to do a political science PhD as opposed to a history PhD, but the idea of going back and looking into the historical archives, declassified documents, foreign relations of the United States, as well as on the archival work on the other side, whether it's in Korea or Asia, just fascinated me. I just loved looking in, and reading about how people thought at the time and why it caused them to make the choices that they made, which later historians would record as being wise or unwise choices, but at the time were considered to be maybe not the best options, but the least worst options available, because often that's how policy is made. Um, and so all of that just fascinated me. And so I became, uh, I felt most comfortable when because this was back when nothing was online. I felt most comfortable in the stacks with these volumes of foreign relations of the United States with my little index cards going through and you know documenting things that I thought were interesting for the theory I was trying to build or test. So is it helpful to, for your career to be in, in Washington as a researcher? Yes, I mean, I think it is. I mean, you know, the archives, the National Archives are right here, of course. But it's also the fact that all of our res my research, even though it's historical, certainly links up to what's happening in policy today. So Georgetown, the, you know, Georgetown being the best university in the nation's capital, so centrally located, provides access to um, all sorts of current policymakers, former policymakers that allow you to do things like conduct oral histories and things of, of things they may not have written down yet. So it's a real advantage to be here, you know, in the field that I'm in, international relations, foreign policy, and political science. I mean, you couldn't be in a better place than at the university here in Washington, D.C. I've heard some of our colleagues uh, comment that sometimes it gets noisy here, that uh, it's very easy to get drawn into the day-to-day -day problems facing uh, either our federal government or international organizations. Do, do you feel that, and how do you manage that as a scholar? I think, you know, it's a great question, and I think we all face that, you know, at a prominent university in a major urban area that you we are looked to not just for our research but as um, uh, uh, voices to speak um, you know on public policy or to lead opinion to commentate on the latest 
turn of events. And so I, I feel like I feel like every scholar, whatever field they're in, will be called upon at some point to um, to have a public policy voice on whatever the issue might be, even more so here in Washington, D.C. I think that's a good thing. I think it, it helps to contribute to a more well-informed discussion about whatever the issue is, rather than a discussion simply among pundits. I think in, in, I've been in situations where I sit, I'm sitting with a group of other people who are all commentators, and you're the only substantive expert, and you can bring a lot to a conversation, when, whether it's on television or in the newspaper, uh, with that expertise. So managing it is, you know, I think it's less of a challenge for senior scholars because we become more practiced in it. But I think for junior scholars, it's harder because there's something tempting about doing that. But like you said, especially in Washington, D.C., it can become all-consuming. You can spend a day sort of answering emails from reporters and then going to a think tank event and then doing television in the afternoon and then your whole day is gone. You've got done, done no research. So as a junior scholar, I was careful not to do too much of that, to really focus on my research. And then after I was promoted and got tenure, I engaged in it a little more. In fact, I think the first op-ed I wrote for the New York Times was after. I got tenure. I didn't waste my time doing any of that stuff beforehand. But then after, you know, when, once you've, and, and once you're promoted, you, you've kind of had an established position in the field. So you have something to say. We should all feel like we have something to contribute on the issues we know well. This is a great segue into, into comments on the, on the life of a faculty member. We're, we're constantly juggling things. We We have our students and we have our teaching and we have our research and they're a variety of service activities. Uh, so what have you learned over your career in juggling those balls? Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you think you're better now than you were? And what what didn't you know when you first started out that you now know? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know there are all sorts of competing pressures for junior faculty. I mean, you mentioned a whole bunch of them. And then there's all the, all the other competing pressures on the personal side. Many people are starting young families and things. And so there's a lot of stuff that you have to do. And I think looking back on it, the best bit of advice that I could give, and it's something that a good friend of mine has also said, is that even though there are all these competing pressures, you need to take care of yourself first. Right. And that may sound selfish, but it's not meant to sound selfish in the sense that, you know, between the kids, soccer practice, teaching, serving on an admissions committee, doing all sorts of different things, you need to carve out that time in the day, every day if you can, for your research. Because that is the essence of who we are, and that is really what allows us to succeed in the field. So you have to be able to pay yourself first. And often that means getting up earlier than you would like to try to get in a bit of research at some point in the day on a continuous basis. You know as well as I do, as researchers, when you, you're working on a project then you stop for a week or 10 days and you go back to it, there's all these startup costs again to get back into the flow. So I think the best bit of advice I could give is really try to pay yourself first not to the detriment of all the other things you do, probably to the detriment of sleep. But um, that that's, and, and I feel like once you've done that, you feel better the rest of the day, like, because you know you've gotten a bit of work in. So are you an early guy? You wake up early and do you have a, a discipline of 
doing your research work and then going getting on with the day? Is I try to. You know, yeah. I try to, especially if I'm writing a book, if I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of writing a book, the mornings become very important. I try to get as much in as I can in the mornings. And, you know, I think we think better in the morning, too. So before you get bogged down with all the other things that... Uh, you have to do for the university or for your students uh, trying to get that bit of time in in the morning. Mm -hmm. It works. G give us a sense of how you've uh, dealt with uh, teaching and research and have you found ways of integrating those, of, of making them more synergistic than they may appear on the surface? Yeah, uh, you know, I think a lot of it depends on the courses that you're teaching. So if I'm teaching big survey courses, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm quite practiced in that and you, I think the, the biggest thing there is to try to bring some of these ideas, which are, can be old ideas, to, to try to bring them alive and make them relevant to current day situations that students might be more interested in. I think the other part of teaching, for me at least, is trying to, probably in more higher level, I don't want to use the word boutique, but specialized courses, trying more to integrate the research and the teaching. So. One example, and I don't necessarily recommend that others do this, was I was on a short contract to produce a book, and uh, I thought the best way of trying to meet the very short deadlines and write something that was good was actually to teach a course on it. And so I actually designed a course that had, you know, 12, 13 sessions, and those pretty much made up the 12, 13 chapters of the book. I mean, it was... It was a pretty difficult semester, but at the same time, I thought it was one way to integrate research and teaching. And then the third point I would make here is that I have found that my work in policy when I served uh, in the U.S. government has been extremely helpful for my teaching. That have, working sort of on the same topics, but in the real world, you did the same thing in government, that it gives you, it gives you insight, it gives you a broader understanding of the issues, and it gives you examples that you can tell to your students. And I feel like, you know, that bit of government service actually made me a much better teacher. And, and, and do the opposite side. So, so what did you learn in government that you didn't know before you started doing that? So I guess one of the things is that on the po on the policy side, well, I guess there, I think there were there there are two things. The first is that uh, government work is very different from academic work. In government work, you work as a team. Uh, in academia, you know the idea is my idea. It's my book. It's my article. It's my name on it. In government, particularly if it's a good idea, everybody wants to take credit for it, which is okay. You know, I mean. In my case, I was working for a national security advisor and a president, and all the good ideas were theirs, and all the bad ideas were mine. <laughs> so I think there's that element. The other, I think the other element is, as academics, we often work alone, particularly when we're doing research. And government, you rarely work alone. It's always as part of a, a team of very worthy public servants. And then finally, on sort of maybe the slightly negative side, in academia, we think of ourselves as thinking of big, important ideas that in some cases are path-breaking, but in any event is moving forward our knowledge. And in government and in policy, I think sometimes academics will be surprised about how petty it is, how it's about, not I certainly didn't do this, but others have done it, how, it's about how you exclude somebody from a meeting to try to exclude their voice from a decision or how personalities can often affect the way 
you know, interaction takes place over policy. And so you know, that, that's a very human aspect of policy that I think for many of us, in my case, who study international relations, was frankly surprising, right, that these sorts of things could actually impact policy outcomes, but they do. Did you also see, uh, there's a contrast that many people make uh, that has to do with the, the forced decisions under uncertainty that must take place in a government policy shop, even when there's inadequate data mm -hmm. uh, that we as academics might like to just spend a little more time in the archive getting those data before we form our opinion. Did, did you feel that uh, difference as well? Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, particularly in the job I was in, which, uh, you know, is, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I mean, there's just so many things coming in at you. Um, often decisions are made with imperfect information. And, you know, it, that's another time when you realize how much um, perceptual and cognitive biases matter because whatever bits of information that you have upon which you make a decision are all filtered through everybody's cognitive lens and so people have pre-existing beliefs about certain things and that naturally can affect how they make decisions. So yes, it's a very imperfect environment where not only do you not have enough data, you don't have enough time, there's consistent stress crisis decision-making um, and that's something I think that and, and we study this there's a in, in my field there is actually a literature on crisis decision-making and how these things stress perceptual biases lack of sleep can matter but nothing prepares you for it like actually having to do it so so give us a sense of what you're working on right now so what what's the most exciting thing you're doing right now so uh, the thing I'm working on right now is looking at um, history again, but looking at history in a very different context, which is project is trying to understand how much history matters politically. There's a lot of unresolved history between peoples and between nations. Unresolved history from World War II or going back even further that caused politicians to take particularly patriotic or nationalist stands on those histories. And so the question I'm asking is, I understand that they want to take these nationalist stands that then cause countries to butt up against each other, but how much do those nationalist stands matter politically? In other words, how much do politicians get rewarded for taking particularly patriotic stands on history issues? And how much do they not get punished for not taking particularly strong stands, for taking, for example, a conciliatory stand on history? And so this is very topical right now because there's a lot of unresolved history in my part of the world, Asia, that I work on. Um, and it's a, it's a project where we're actually, we have to build the data set because this data set doesn't exist, right? How politicians position themselves on history issues and how they do in the next election. So right now we're in the process of creating these data sets right now, original data sets, and it's just fascinating work. So these are multiple countries, multiple politicians, multiple times? That's what we're trying to do, but we're, we're starting with, we're starting in particular with looking at in East Asia, where there's a lot of unresolved history between Japan and its neighbors, Korea and China, and seeing to what extent these uh, nationalist stands on history issues are things that politicians take because they feel like if they don't, they're going to be punished in the next election, or whether they, if they do, they're going to be re rewarded, to see if there's actually any 
significant correlation between between those things. So it's a project that is based in history, but it's using sort of data and statistical methods to try to understand or try to try to understand or get answers to the uh, real world policy questions today, right? Which I think at least in the School of Foreign Service in my field is the essence of what we, yeah. we do. So this really, it, if I'm hearing you right, the complexity of, of these data is rather awesome. So you, you have issues and politicians and elections and countries and yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's doing things like scraping their social media because sometimes you know, they don't necessarily take stands and report them to the newspapers. So it's scraping their social media. I, I find it fascinating, right? I mean, I think it's an area that is, it's of great importance now for the United States in Asia. Our two allies right now, our two closest allies, Japan and Korea, are fighting over history issues. Um, they're basically in a trade war over history issues. So it's very topical, but at the same time, it's trying to find answers or insights to a current policy issue that matters for the U.S. position in Asia, but using sort of deep scholarship and history, as well as new you know, data scraping techniques. So, so this fun. seems like something that uh, is a series of articles as well as a book uh, potential. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. I mean, I think probably initially as an article, but then, uh, then possibly later as a book. Yeah. Well, Victor Chow, fascinated with our conversation, and I thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure.